Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, for the last time, I don't know whether you scream amen or are wanting more. I doubt you're wanting more. Romans 13, 1 through 7, I, I suppose that some could ask, why five weeks you know, in, in, in this passage? Isn't that a little bit uh, much? Well, well, some of it involves some interpretation um, from our part of that this is needed to be understood. Uh, that we need to carefully work through these things. Uh, one one uh, quick uh, announcement for next week is that we will get to celebrate another baptism uh, next, next Sunday together. Uh, we're not doing the full meal and things because we've just had one recently, but we'll rejoice together uh, as we see uh, little Brielle uh, be baptized next week. Well, let's turn uh, to Romans 13. Look at our attention there. Let's read verses 1 through 7, and then I'll pray and ask for God's help, beginning in verse one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask, O Lord, that you will send us your spirit to shine light on your word. We ask God for you to direct us, direct our thoughts. Lord, we know that if you did not do this work, we would be incapable of understanding and we certainly would be incapable, Lord, of submitting and worshiping and obeying. So we ask, oh God, send your spirit and give us help. Lord, in what we look at this morning, I ask for the grace that you'll help me to preach. And Lord, I I, I need you to direct me. I need you to set a guard over my lips so that I don't say things that are untrue, unhelpful, uh, sinful in some way. And I ask, oh God, that you will come to each one of us and help us to come to conclusions of truth. Lead us, oh Lord, we pray. We want to obey you. We want to honor you. We want to serve you. We want to influence this world in the ways that you want us to. So please, oh God, use us in this. Have mercy Send us help, we pray, and we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we started this series uh, by me uh, saying to you that there has been a 
a, a long and complex battle through, through history, this wrestling match between the church and the state, that this is a complex issue. And the church has needed a long time to develop its understanding in these things. And really, what we are going to be addressing this morning is the most complex in this complex subject. At the height of the complexity of this dilemma is, is this question. What is the Christian supposed to do when the governing authorities leave their jurisdiction? What is the Christian supposed to do when tyranny comes? What happens when the governing authorities issue commands which are unjust before God? And, and what happens when they even begin to uh, murder Christians themselves? We've been talking about the fact that government has been, has been established by God and has a sphere of authority. We've been addressing the fact that they're supposed to stay within that. But we've not yet talked about what are Christians supposed to do when that happens? This is a dilemma that the church has faced repeatedly. In every century, in every century of the church's existence, of course, there's been some overreach and those kinds of things. We get that. But in every century on this planet, since the church came into existence, there has been some place that Satan has influenced the kings of this earth to persecute and even to slaughter believers. It happens today. It has happened every day, somewhere since the church was born. What do we do? How are we supposed to respond to these things? Um, in, in Sunday school this morning, uh, I, I looked at some of the highlights of church history um, in looking at some of those theologians and groups who made significant contributions um, to this understanding in history and, and those who addressed it. Augustine addressed these things. Luther, Calvin, Beza, the Puritans, the Huguenots, the Covenanters, Chinese believers, North Korean believers, believers in the Middle East, early American believers before religious liberty was the law of the land addressed these things. Over and over again, the church has had to consider what are we supposed to do here? And they have fa faced the, the dilemma of wanting to honor God, wanting to honor God in how they handled these things. The question of their day was the question of resistance. Now, we need to stop right there before we take another step because there's a danger right here. One of, one of the things we need to do is define what is meant by that word resistance because one of the big, the big problems is, is sometimes when people hear the word resistance or the word resist, they think, grab a rifle, head into the streets. Well, no. That, that, that is not uh, what, what is immediately being uh, addressed there. When Christians through history have discussed resistance and practiced resistance, it begins with things as simple as speaking. It, it begins with things like trying to influence the world and the rulers to stop the injustice. There are various levels of resistance and the simplest of them being just simply declaring this is unlawful. 
This is ungodly and unjust. And helping other citizens to realize it too. And in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and throughout the history of the church, the people of God have from time to time needed to engage in civil disobedience to resist illegitimate demands of rulers. When is that time? And what is it supposed to look like? Well, that's what we're going to consider today in, in a uh, general overview. You, we, we are not going to get into the weeds of everything. This is something for you to, uh, I'm getting you started for you to go study some more on your own. But I want to look at a, a general overview. But even before we, we fully get going, I also want to make this clear. This subject can be very dangerous to our hearts because as humans, sinful humans, we're already kind of naturally wired up to like rebellion, at least in some circumstances. So there is something in us that could like this study and that will hear some of what I have to say and then tune out some of the other things so that it can align with a political idea that I have and that there could be something in our hearts that just really grabs on and says, oh yeah, pastor's given us the, you know, the, the, the example, given us the, the encouragement to go tell those idiots what to do. That spirit, that is of the flesh. That is not of the spirit. This that we're looking at today can only rightly be understood in light of the four previous sermons that we have preached here addressing the call of God to submit to governing authorities and that it is established by God. We are to obey laws, pay taxes, and even show honor and respect to our rulers. That's the general spirit. Okay, just, just like this general spirit within marriage. A husband is to love his wife and a wife is to respect her husband, okay? But what would happen if one of them tried to hurt the other physically? Okay, well, yeah, resist that, but we still know what the general spirit is. Well, similarly, when it comes to our responsibility, we are to see what our general spirit is. It is a spirit of submission and respect and honor. But yes, we do, we must, we have to talk about what do we do when authorities cross lines? Because it is the reality in this cursed world. So let's get started. I've got this morning divided into uh, seven parts. So this is, uh, this is a bit of a topical study referencing many places in Scripture. I would encourage you to have your pens and paper ready to jot down places in the Bible for you to hang on to. I'm going to try to give you a lot of those. So seven parts. Here is number one. First, we start with the most basic question. Is there ever a time in Scripture when we are shown to resist commands from governing rulers? The answer is absolutely yes. Look over to Acts chapter 4 with me. Uh, the book right before Romans, Acts chapter 4. And what the, the context here in Acts chapter 4 is, Peter and John have just been arrested by the authorities for preaching in the name of Jesus. They have preached the message of the gospel. The authorities have taken them um, into custody. Pick up in verse 18, Acts 4, verse 18, and read through 20. And when they, they are the authorities, had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Go to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, guess what happens here? They're arrested again. They are arrested again for preaching the gospel and pick up in verse 27. When they, the authorities, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So that gets us started with the basic concept that yes, because this is a cursed world, rulers don't always do what they are supposed to. And there are times when they issue commands that if we were to comply with those commands, we would be rebelling against the authority of the Lord Jesus who rules over them, who rules over us, who rules over all. So now let's think through when are those times. So here's the second part. We must resist when authorities command us to do something that scripture forbids. Now, I'd love to read all of the passages that I'm going to reference, but, but just for, for time's sake, we just cannot. I'm going to reference a, a bunch of them and ask you to write them down and look at them later. Um, but here are biblical examples of this kind of scenario. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21, Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to put to death all of the baby boys in order to limit the population. But the midwives refused to do this because it would be murder. And we are specifically told that God blessed the midwives because of their obedience to God, because they refused uh, to do this. For them, resistance was simply don't do what the king has commanded. They resisted. And then, and then there's a connected principle that, yeah, I do think it's helpful to look at with this whole idea they refused to do it, and they lied to Pharaoh about it. They lied to Pharaoh, and they said, well, we can't help it. They give birth before we even show up. Now, this is a connected principle, and it can be one of those that we sort of wrestle through here. Here is the principle, and it comes up quite a few times in Scripture. The principle is, in this cursed world, there are times when, when commands of God come into conflict. And we're taught what to do when they do come into conflict. So, you should obey your governing rulers. But you are commanded not to murder. What happens when those two commands come into conflict? The, the, the command to protect life has a higher priority. You're not to lie. That's a command. But you are to protect life. So if those two come into conflict, which one do we obey? The command to protect life has a higher priority. You are a Christian living in uh, Europe during World War II. You are hiding Jews in obedience to God, in service to God. You're hiding Jews in your house, and the soldiers come and knock on your door and ask, are there any Jews here? What do you do? We are shown in Scripture what we are to do. And part of just what I'm bringing up is, 
The Bible addresses complex moral dilemmas. The first time you hear that kind of thing, it can make you a little nervous because you could say something like, well, pastor, this could be a slippery slope. Well, yeah, but this is the Bible addressing these kinds of things. And if somebody abuses this, and of course people abuse principles of the Bible, but don't hate the principle of the Bible. Hate the abuse. (laughs) Hate what people do wrongly to these principles of scripture that are there. The Bible addresses complex moral dilemmas quite a bit and shows us how to deal with them. And that is a part of this. Don't forget Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Don't take something like this and use it as an excuse to lie whenever you want and do whatever you want. No, 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 no. You submit to God. Um, God is not mocked. But at the same time, this is one of these principles, and, and you'll see that more as we, as we go. Okay, so we started there with the Hebrew midwives. Next, not only did Pharaoh command the midwives to put the baby boys to death, but when that did not work, he commanded the parents to put their baby boys uh, to death. And I have no doubt, we're not shown in Scripture what this looked like, but I have no doubt that many of the people did what Pharaoh commanded because they wanted to avoid difficulty. But others of them, like Moses' parents, refused to comply with this order and this honored God to raise Moses secretly, to, to, to have this deception and raise him. This honored the Lord because it was obeying the command to protect life. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, You recall the time when the Israelite spies came into Jericho to map it out. The rulers of the city began to track down the spies and the spies took refuge in Rahab's uh, house. The king of Jericho sent an order, an order to Rahab to send out the spies. Instead, she hid them on her roof and even deceived the soldiers when they came to look at him. She said they went that way when she had hid them on her roof. And again, Rahab is commended in Scripture for what she did. She is counted in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith for what she did. Because another biblical principle, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's guaranteed that it's something we should imitate. The Bible records people sinning. Like Abraham when he lied, okay? We have to look for cues in in the context to look to see, is this something that is being promoted and commended in Scripture, or is this an example of somebody sinning? We are shown that Rahab was blessed by God, commended in Scripture for what she did. Next, in Daniel chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar gave the order that all of the people were to bow to the golden image. The three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they refused to do so. They refused to dishonor the Lord in an act of idolatry. They did not bow. They were thrown into the fiery furnace, but they did not perish. The Lord preserved them, and they are commended for refusing the demand of the ruler. And then one last one under this one. In Daniel 6, verses 6 through 10, I think there's a very important instance when Daniel, once again uh, in this, uh, obeyed the Lord. King Darius gave a command that for a certain period of time, no one was allowed to pray to any God, any idol, anyone but himself. The people were commanded to pray to King Darius. And so what did Daniel do? He refused to do what the king had said. Uh, He went up into his house, to the upper story, opened the window, 
and prayed as he always did. As a result of this, he was thrown into the lion's den. The Lord supernaturally closed the mouths of the lion and preserved Daniel's life. God was commending Daniel for what he did. Now, lest there be misunderstandings, though, we also need to to know this. Just because there are many places in the Bible where people obeyed the Lord and, and took great risk and he preserved their earthly lives, it's not a principle that that's always what's going to happen. The Bible also shows us the principle that many people obey God in these things and then they are put to death, like Stephen, like James, like Paul, like 11 out of the 12, uh, original 12 apostles, and etc. So, when, when the state commands the Christian to do something that God forbids, we must not comply. Number three, when authority forbids you from doing something that God commands, you are not to comply. We just looked at Acts 4 and 5 a bit ago where the authorities, they weren't commanding the Christians to go uh, do some act that was a transgression of a commandment. Instead, there was a work that they were called to fulfill and the state was telling them they weren't allowed to do that. Okay, They were telling them not to preach the gospel, not to make disciples. And when this is done, the Christian is commanded to do what, what we must do, what God has commanded. So even though the example of uh, Daniel uh, fit our last point, it also fits this one right here. Uh, Daniel was commanded not to pray to the Lord by the earthly authorities, but we know that we are commanded to pray to the Lord. And so Daniel did what he knew honored God. You may also think of the days of Ahab and Jezebel when they were killing the prophets of the Lord and forcing the people to bow the knee to a a statue, an idol of Baal. But there were 7,000 in the land who refused to bow their knee uh, to the idol. And, 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 And let me talk for just a second here about one of the ways that this connects with the gospel. If if you're new to studying the Bible, if if you're, you're new to this kind of thing, one thing that you need to know that the Bible addresses very clearly is Jesus said, unless one is born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. The scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In a dozen different ways, the Bible says this. You must be made right with God because you're not born right with God. You're not naturally right with God. And none of us are good enough for the kingdom of heaven. You must receive eternal life. And then the Bible tells us how we do that. Jesus is the bridge that takes us from where we are to where we need to be. Jesus is the door. He is the gate that gives you entrance into eternal life. And then the Bible shows us how it is that we walk through that door. The way that we walk through that door into eternal life is you must repent of your sins and you must receive The Lord Jesus, that's another way of of saying uh, embrace and place your trust in him. You must receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You must place your faith in Christ. But the Bible shows that when somebody does this, when they truly turn to Christ, it results in an internal change that brings a change of lifestyle. 
And over and over again in, in, in Jesus' teaching, he addressed what this changed lifestyle will look like. And here's where I'm going with our connection with Romans 13. Here is one of the things that Jesus said concerning this. He said, if anyone denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. But if anyone confesses me before men, I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels in heaven. Jesus then went on to tell us not to fear man who can merely kill the body, but rather to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Multitudes and multitudes of Christians, we, we really don't even know the number. We know that it would be in the hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout history have needed to prove their faith, have had a moment where they were threatened with death, and they were told that they would be, they would be able to let, let go free, be able to live if they would just do something like put the pinch of incense in the, in the coffer uh, to offer it up to Caesar. If they would just say something like, I'll stop. If they would stop preaching. They were given some moment where they could have chosen earth, continuing earthly life, but it meant denying the Lord Jesus. And the majority of the time when that occurs, not every, but the majority, this comes at the hand of the state. This comes by governing rulers of the earth. Governing rulers of the earth have killed more Christians than any other group, any other person in history. The majority of the time, this has come from earthly authorities. Satan hates the church, and he influences kings and governors and rulers. Christians have died for doing what Christ commanded, like confessing him as Lord. And Christian, you, you need to think through these things deeply in, in your own heart so that you come to the resolve within you that if put in the position, I will confess Christ. Do not cower before them. When the state forbids the Christian from doing what God has commanded, we must obey God rather than men. Here's part number four. When obvious injustice is being done by authorities, we must in wisdom act in some way that honors God. This scenario has come up again and again. In Esther chapter five, uh, Esther, the Jew, was, uh, uh, was put in a position where she saw that her countrymen, her fellow Jews, were about to be slaughtered. They were about to be killed. And so she approached King Mordecai, even though it was against the law. Without being summoned, she entered into the room. This was forbidden by law upon the penalty of death, but she entered into the room in order to advocate, in order to plead for him not to slaughter innocent life. And, and, and by the way, there's something else helpful to see here as well. You know, there's, there's not a command in the Bible that says, thou shalt approach the king even when you're forbidden if he's about to, about to kill a bunch of people. It's, it's, it's not a commandment. It's never spelled out with clarity like that. So why did Esther know that this kind of thing was the will of God? Well, because when we read the Bible, 
It, it is not only the technicalities of the law that we're supposed to pay attention to. Yes, we need to pay attention to that. But we are also supposed to glean from Scripture the kinds of deeds that the Christian is supposed to be doing, the kinds of works that are the will of God. When God gives a list of commands, we're seeing the kind of attitudes, the kind of spirits, the, the kind of work that we're supposed to be engaged in. And, and so when, when Corey Ten Boom and her family hid Jews during World War II, you know, that kind of specific thing isn't spelled out in Scripture just like that. But they knew they had a responsibility before God. They, they knew that it would have been cowardice. They knew that it would have been breaking the will of God if they had not engaged and put their hand in the work. And so they developed an entire underground system, underground enterprise for hiding and transporting Jews complete with stealing ration cards in order to feed the Jews that they hid. I believe every bit of that honored the Lord and is an example for us. And repeatedly in history, this kind of scenario comes up again and again. The Christian is to use wisdom and act in some way. Here's part number five. When government has overstepped its God-given limits of authority, using wisdom, we seek to bring change. Using wisdom, we seek to bring change. In Romans 13, 7, Paul tells us to render to governing authorities what is their due. And we've mentioned that it is intentionally worded by Scripture to communicate that there are things that earthly authorities are not due by God, that, that actually giving certain things to them would be wrong because it would be stealing from someone else. Jesus told us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So we must not give to Caesar what belongs to God, like worship, uh, like a certain level of honor. We are to give honor. But there's a crossing of line of honor and submission that goes beyond. We must not steal from others to give to Caesar. You know, we, we've brought up the example of China. You know, for, for more than a century, China has been committing crimes against humanity. And for a long period of time, they had implemented the, the one-child law. The state regulated the number of children that families um, were, were allowed by the state to have. It's, it's very ironic how similar it is to what Pharaoh did, isn't it? Satan's tactics just always recycle again and again. Satan hates children. And so we see it again and again. But when the state tries to reach their hands into matters that God has given the family the authority to do, th this is the overstepping of their God-given authority. And, and this is the, these are the times when the Christian is to engage using wisdom to seek to bring change, to seek to influence. We'll talk about what some of the particulars are of actions to take in a bit, but the Christian seeks to bring change. And then here's part number six. Let me also just kind of rattle off some other relevant passages from Scripture. There's quite a few places in the Bible that addresses this kind of topic, and, and you could draw out other principles from this. So let, let me list some off here. In David's life, there are actually a number of instances um, when David uh, resisted illegitimate behavior by King Saul. First, when Saul wanted to kill David, David fled from the authority. 
Because what Saul was doing was unjust. Something else to also remember about David, though, that I I believe is is a principle to draw some conclusions from, and that is David did everything he could to avoid physical war with Saul. Uh, David was, was, uh, took the route of trying to, to leave the area so that he did not have the bloodshed of confrontation with him. I believe that if it had come to blows, David would have won. But David was doing everything he could to avoid that kind of confrontation. Also consider 1 Samuel 14. During a particular battle, um, Saul issued a command that none of the soldiers were allowed to take even a bite of food until they had slaughtered all of the enemy. His son Jonathan never heard that command, and Jonathan took a bite of honey. When Saul found out, he said he was going to kill Jonathan. Do you remember the response from the soldiers, from the people, though? They cried out, as the Lord lives, you are not to do these things. They resisted Saul. They told him, you're you're not going to kill Jonathan. And they raised their voice and they changed his mind. That is an example of resistance. That is an example of seeking to bring change. Consider Elijah whenever he resisted arrest from Jezebel. And you remember what he was uh, running away for, why, why she wanted to arrest him. He had just led the nation to put to death the government funded priest of Baal and Asherah. Consider when Elisha was going to be arrested unjustly. And Elisha called down from heaven the fire and killed 150 of the soldiers. I told you the account of Queen Athaliah, that she killed the heirs to the throne and she took the throne herself, but that Jehoiada the priest, another authority, by the way, Jehoiada the priest kept Joash, young Joash, alive and hid him and raised him. And then when he came of age, they formed the plot that the priests then went and rallied the people to put Athaliah to death for her injustice and to put Joash on the throne. I told you about the time when King Uzzah overstepped his authority and tried to offer incense in the temple. And what did the priests do? The priest arose and resisted him and pushed him out that door. Consider how many of the prophets preached against the sins of the kings. This is another form of resistance. Nathan confronted the sin of David. Uh, Elijah confronted the sin of Ahab. Jeremiah preached against, against the sins of the judges and the governors and the king. John the Baptist preached against Herod and was put in prison for it. Consider the apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, I've told you about the account of one time when he was uh, uh, about to be beaten without trial. And he, he spoke to the soldiers who were about to do this. So he didn't just say, thank you, sir. Let me hit me again. He, he told them, this is unjust what you are doing. And they changed their minds. There was another occasion in Acts 16 when Paul was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was beaten without trial and put in prison overnight. And in the nighttime, if you recall, God sent an earthquake and caused the doors of the prison cells to open. It was was a miraculous moment. But Paul and his companions, they didn't leave. Now, do do you remember whenever God opened the doors for Peter? What did Peter do? He fled. Is that evil? No, God led him to do that. 
There was another occasion when Paul fled from unjust arrest at Damascus, but this time in Philippi, he stayed. The Philippian jailer, when he woke up to the earthquake and saw the doors flung open, he was about to kill himself because that was a Roman law. Um, If you lost a prisoner, you forfeited your life. So the Philippian jailer, he was about to kill himself. When Paul cried out, "Don't, don't harm yourself, we're still here. Do you remember what the result of that was? The Philippian jailer turned to Christ, but Paul stayed. I believe that he was totally justified to have left, but he chose to stay. And I think one of the things to draw out of that is there are times when the Christian has multiple options before us. You can stay, you can flee. There are different ways to honor God. Some may be bolder than others. Paul at this time chose to stay. He stayed in the Philippian jailer turned to Christ, but actually the story's not over. The next day, the authorities of Philippi sent word uh, to Paul and his companions, okay, get out of here. You remember what Paul said? "Uh Uh-uh, I don't think so. You beat us without trial. You put us in prison without any official charges brought against us, and now you want us to slink out of here so you don't get in trouble? Uh Uh-uh, if you want us out, you come take us out yourselves. To which the authorities then Uh, began to tremble because they knew they could get in some bad trouble. What was Paul doing? Paul was working so that these authorities wouldn't do that again. Paul was working so that they would not continue to act in injustice. And then they came and apologized and then pleaded with them, please get out of here, pretty please. And Paul and his companions left. Part of the point of why I I bring some of these up is the Bible actually does have quite a bit to say on the subject. Sometimes we can get to thinking that Romans 13 is, is the only thing it has to say. But no, there's, even before Romans 13 was written, there was quite a bit being shown. The principle of submission, it was there in the Bible before Romans 13. And some of the principles of, of what to do uh, when they leave their jurisdiction was also addressed. Now, number seven. What should Christian resistance look like? This is the point, and let me just go ahead and say this uh, from the beginning. This is the point where there may be the most disagreement, and there's, there's room for disagreement within a church. Um, throughout history, as the church has wrestled through these things, there's been different, uh, some of our heroes who disagreed with another hero. But, but let me point to some of the conclusions that have come to in history. So if we've seen that there is a time to resist, how is it to be done? Well, first, just simply think about what the word resist means. It simply means the opposite of comply. So if if somebody gives you an order, okay, some man on the street says, give me $20. If you don't do what he says, you're not complying. You are resisting the, the command. And so there are a lot of different degrees of resistance, lighter forms and heavier forms. And during the Reformation in the 16th century, You know, the the Reformation ignited a great deal of persecution, an incredible amount of of persecution. And the the persecution was from two primary sources. Uh, Number one, the Catholic Church, and then number two, governments, civil authorities. Germany put Christians to death. England put Christians to death. France put Christians to death. Scotland put Christians to death. Numerous of these countries where where, where the Reformation took place, Christians were being slaughtered for believing the gospel, for teaching their children the Bible in their own language. 
Christians were being slaughtered. And so these Christians were forced to think through these things. This wasn't just theoretical for them. Like this was their, this was their life. This was life and death. The reformers, the, the leaders like Luther and Calvin and Ibiza, etc., they had to address these matters because this was real life. There, there were believers dying in France, writing letters to Calvin asking, what do we do? This was heavy. They thought through these things more than you and I have ever even considered thinking them through. This was life for them. And they came to a, a number of conclusions. They came to conclusions about a, a sort of a tiered system of lighter degrees of resistance at times and then heavier degrees of resistance at, at other times. As the injustice and the tyranny grew greater, so then would the resistance grow greater. The first and most basic form of resistance is just simply speaking. It's just speaking. It is speaking to governing rulers and, to t and, and saying to them that this is unjust, that this is leaving their authority, that this is unlawful. The, the next way of speaking is often overlooked, but it actually proves to be one of the most effective, one of the most effective, and that is speaking to your fellow man. It's speaking to your neighbors. It's speaking out publicly. Uh, but before service started, we, I was talking with, with Mr. Bryan about some of the things that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did as he, he addressed on the radio, speaking to the public, telling them about the injustices and, and calling them to, uh, to uh, see that this is evil and to speak to the authorities to leave it again and again. This has proven to be one of the most effective ways of doing it. It is simply addressing and calling these things out, bringing the citizens on board so that they speak to the rulers as well. Next, another form is that there is a time for civil disobedience, a time to disobey a ruler and to do so secretly. Think of the 7,000 who never bowed the knee to Baal. Think of the believers who met in secret in the book of Acts once Acts 8, the great persecution launched. Uh, during the, the lockdowns in Canada, which were you know, much more severe than they ever got here, uh, there were many Christians who began uh, to find places out in the fields to meet, ironically, just like the covenanters were forced to do, to go meet out in the fields. And, and the prime minister there, Trudeau, was sending helicopters to find them in the fields so that he could arrest them. Next, there is a time to disobey a ruler and to do so publicly. Let's return to our example with Daniel again. Daniel was forbidden to pray. And what did Daniel do? He didn't just pray. Now, let me be clear. I believe that Daniel still would have obeyed God if he had prayed in his closet. Daniel chose to do something bolder. Daniel chose to do something that would do more than just an individual act of obedience to God, but would seek to bring change and seek to influence his fellow believers. Daniel went into his house, went up to the upper story. Why'd he go up there? He opened the window. Why'd he open the window? And then he prayed. I imagine that in Daniel's day, there were probably some of the people who said, Daniel, why you got to go stir in trouble here? You want to pray? Fine. Do it in secret. Why you got to open the window? 
There's a point. Daniel was doing something publicly, and look what it accomplished. By taking a bolder kind of stand, look what it did. During the COVID lockdowns, the city of Moscow, Idaho, locked everything down in a pretty severe kind of way. They restricted churches in some, some pretty severe kinds of ways. You know, for a while, there were no meetings allowed. And then once they were, there were the, the, the certain kinds of mandates. They even had a six-foot social distance order uh, by demand. And, and I want to be very, very, very clear here. Um, we, we can come to different opinions on what we will do personally on those things. And we can have differences of opinion in those things and still love each other as a church family, okay? And in Romans 14, we're going to talk some more about those kinds of things. But I am addressing some of the, what the civil authority was doing there. And so the civil authority gave some of these demands, you know, forbidding coming closer than six feet uh, to certain people in this particular city. There were places where they were restricting the Lord's Supper, places where they were restricting baptisms and etc., so restricting singing. In Moscow, Idaho, meanwhile, the mayor held a wedding reception at his own personal residence, mask not enforced, no social distancing, all eating a meal together, but the churches were restricted. You get the point there. So Christ Church of Moscow decided to do something and to do it publicly. They held a public worship service and they went to the, uh, the town hall and met out in the parking lot to sing hymns together. The city sent authorities and arrested three of the worshipers there. And one of the things, though, that bothered me so badly when that happened was not only was it kind of shocking that here are police arresting worshipers for singing publicly, that was bothersome, but something else bothered me really badly as well. And that was across the nation, there were Christians who were bashing that church. And they were saying things like, why you got to go stir in trouble? Why you got to go doing this kind of thing? Well, it turns out the courts ruled that the city was violating its own laws. That the church was perfectly free to do this kind of thing. But even if it hadn't worked out in the courts, they had decided that they were going to show, they were going to uh, put some way of showing you're crossing lines here and we're just not going to comply. When you tell us we can't meet for worship and do what God has called us to do, we're showing we're just not going to comply with that. There is a time for a Christian to be public in them. Now, let me also add this word. We must be wise. We must be wise because what is the end goal? We're trying to win hearts. We're trying to win hearts. We're trying to win people to see that the gospel is beautiful. We don't win hearts by being ugly. We must be wise in how we do it because we're seeking to honor our Lord, but there is a time. Another step in resistance is simply leaving. John Bunyan addressed this one quite a bit because it was one of the options that he faced. He was in prison for around a decade for preaching the gospel, and he could have been released if he would have agreed to stop preaching. He could have taken his family and left the nation. He chose to stay in prison again in order to do something public, to show something there. And he addressed believers in the scenarios that are there. And one of the forms of resistance talked about throughout history by Christians is fleeing. Do you remember what Jesus said? When you come into one city, 
with the gospel and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next place. Know this, it is not cowardly to leave a place of tyranny and to go somewhere uh, where, where, where that kind of persecution doesn't exist. You have the freedom to leave and you have the freedom to stay. What we do not have to do is the freedom to deny Christ. But there are multiple options that may exist. And then another step in this. The reformers specifically, Calvin, Beza, Luther, they urged Christians to appeal to the lesser magistrates. So this is something we talked about in Sunday school. The lesser magistrates would be those other authorities in a land. So kind of like how uh, the, the parliament was supposed to keep the emperor in check and accountable. Um, how in, in our place, you know, we have a system of some checks and balances, etc. There are other authorities like judges, like governors, like rulers. And so the reformers told the uh, Christians to appeal to the lesser magistrates to go to the king or the prime minister, whatever it was, and to hold them accountable. Uh, similar to how a sheriff may refuse to enforce unjust laws, which happens from time to time, even here in our nation. And, and, and by the way, something that is helpful to know as well is nearly all of the reformers, and this includes Samuel Rutherford, who, who wrote that, uh, that book Lex Rex, which was so influential in the world concerning these kinds of things. They taught that the individual has no right to insurrection. That insurrection is not the work of the Christian. Now, what they taught, though, is that if there is a legitimate movement, like, say, the parliament is, is going to hold the king accountable, if there is some kind of legitimate movement of justice there, that the Christian may participate. But insurrection is not the work of the Christian. They also taught that self-defense, even if against authorities, is allowed. So I've told you about the covenanters. There were times when the king would send soldiers and mercenaries that he hired to come rape the women and murder the families. And so what they addressed is self-defense is allowable there. David did everything he could to avoid conflict. I do believe that if it had come to a moment that Saul had drawn his sword and went to go thrust it into David, that David would have been allowed to defend himself. But David did everything that he could to try to avoid that situation. So, various levels of resistance that, that Christians have needed to participate in. But I think it's also helpful and important for us to remember as we're talking about all of these kinds of things, remember that when our Lord Jesus was unjustly arrested, he gave himself over. He uttered no threats. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While having the power, oh yeah, the power, and the authority, oh yes, the authority, he chose to give himself over. And 1 Peter 2 tells us that he is our example. So while we talk about all these kinds of things, we also have to remember that the Christian is to use wisdom. And there may be many scenarios where we have multiple options before us. It may be that you're put in a situation where taking a beating would glorify the name of God. And you could, you could resist it and you would be justified. And nobody has the right to tell you you're not allowed to. 
But it could be that you decide, I, I believe that simply receiving this would more glorify God in some way than if I fought back. And so receive it. And so take the route that Paul did in Philippi. We need to seek the glory of God above all things in this and use wisdom in how we conduct ourselves. We need to also be careful that what drives us in everything is the church being built, the gospel being spread, the kingdom of God coming, and to glorify God. We must be careful never to use any of these kinds of things as an excuse to, to, to fit with some political idea. We don't take the Bible and try to get it to fit, to push it into a political idea. There is no political movement uh, in, in this place that exactly lines up with the Bible and that the Christian can fully align with. Our hope, our hope in life, it is not that somehow we'll be able to create some utopia on earth. Our hope is not that we'll be able to like change a nation into the perfect place. Our hope is that there is a kingdom that awaits us. And we want as much reward uh, when there, when we get there, we want the kingdom of Christ to come in his greatest power as we are able to participate in. Christian, this is a complex subject. But a great gift that Christians have given to the world is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the will of God in these kinds of things. Repeatedly in history, naturalists, so atheists, skeptics, etc., repeatedly, they bring about absolutist forms of government. And repeatedly, Christians are speaking the will of God to the world and teaching the world how this is supposed to work. The role of the civil authority and the role of the citizens to, sub to submit for, for order and for society to flourish. We do that because we understand the bigger picture and because we understand the reign of the Lord Jesus. Christians have given many gifts to the world. The greatest gift, which is in a class all by itself, is the gospel. We proclaim the message of Christ, that there is salvation, and in his name only, we proclaim that he is Lord and that he will forgive sins, and we call people to come, and as we do, souls are saved, the church is built. But Christians are also called by God to teach the world righteousness in every degree, in every place. Christians have influenced the world by teaching the golden rule. The world is different because Christians have influenced and labored in these things. And additionally, in this one as well, Christians have consistently influenced the world so that rulers behave more justly. Citizens submit to authority and bring order, producing flourishing societies. But we also teach about the rights that God has given to each one. Let's not let this legacy die with our generation. Let's know the will of God and let's teach the will of God. This ends our study in Romans 13 in this section. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the wisdom and the order that you have created. We are amazed, oh Lord, when, when we think about it all. Help us, oh God, we pray, to live in obedience Help us to, to demonstrate and, and, and live as an example to the world of, of how we ought to behave 
in this world. Father, we, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are living in places where they are being harmed, they are being put to death. We ask for it to end. We ask, oh God, for you to bring an end to that tyranny. We ask, oh Lord, for you to give our brothers and sisters grace in this way. We thank you, oh God, for what you've done here in our place. Lord, we have known more freedoms than most of history has seen. We have a system that we're able to contribute in voting and choosing leaders. We thank you for this, O oh God. We ask for mercy on our nation. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will bring our rulers to honor you, to do justice, to uphold righteousness. We pray, O oh Lord, that you give us leaders who trust in you. We pray for the salvation of our leaders, O oh God. We ask that you bless them. Those that have malicious intents, we pray that you turn them to so that they want to serve the people. And Lord, help us to live in obedience to you by submitting to them in ways that honor you. Please bless us, O Lord. Father, we ask you to give us your grace as we dismiss and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a good day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.